Thank you for joining me for this teaching from Pennington AG Church. We are into our second week of a series on emotionally healthy spirituality. If you want to dive in deeper, you can listen to last week's message here on our YouTube feed, or you can dive into Peter Scazzaro's book, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, and take your own journey deeper into emotional and spiritual health. Today we are talking about breaking the patterns of our past, breaking the hurts that may come from our family of origin, our neighbor, or the culture we grew up in that is a part of who we are. I'll start by sharing a story. When I was a youth pastor many, many years ago, I was very confident. And so I decided my first series teaching to teenagers in an outreach context was going to be tackling some of the hardest passages in scripture. And we called the series, Did God Really Say That? And I had tackled ones passages that were hard to understand or difficult. One of the ones I tackled was Luke chapter 14, verse 26, where Jesus says, if you want to be my disciple, you must, by comparison, hate everyone else. Your father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even your own life. Otherwise, you cannot be my disciple. I taught that passage to a room of 35 uh, teenagers, many of them without church background, and it may not surprise you, the following Friday, I had an impromptu meeting with one of their parents who came into the youth building and talked to me and said, hey, I just wanted to clarify that um, my son said last week you taught him that he should hate me. And I said, um, well, no. Well, Jesus says that we should, but he's talking about the comparison of family and the kingdom of God and how important a relationship with God is. By comparison, nothing can come in front of, and I like fumbled my way through it. Needless to say, I never saw that parent again or her child in the youth ministry. Talking about our families, talking about what God has to say about how we were raised, the culture we come from, the neighborhoods we identify with is tough stuff. There are topics and things that we hold a lot of emotions to around our identity, what makes us who we are, where we've come from, parents, grandparents, generations that come before us that we hold dearly. And what Jesus is saying in this as he talks about our family and invites us to examine our past is not saying that your family is unimportant. He's saying the kingdom of God is this important. Being drawn into the family of God through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, through his Holy Spirit that binds us, is that important. Honestly, the Bible has a lot to say about family. One way that you can read scripture from Genesis to Revelation is that it is a story about a created family who then were fractured and broke apart to create diversity and learn to love each other through hurts and diversity that eventually will be brought back together in unity under the lordship of Jesus. When the biblical authors use the term family, what they're often talking about are the cultural makeups of who we are that connect us to this world. And when we're talking about what God says to us and speaks to us and reveals about our nature is sometimes in contrast with our family of origin and who they say that we are. And it's the constant human struggle of what I was raised in and the sins and brokenness that I learned from a young age with the maturing process of what God is shaping me, who God is shaping me to be. Jesus has another difficult passage about family. In Mark chapter 3, his family comes to bring him home 
They had heard that he was teaching and he was teaching with authority and maybe even drawing connections that he himself may be God. And they're a little concerned. So they come to a house he's teaching at and they're going to bring him home. And Jesus hears from someone, hey, your family's here to take you home. They think you're crazy. Your mom's calling. It's time to go home. And Jesus responds with, who is my mother and my brothers? Everyone who obeys the word of God are my mother and my brothers. And you're like, what? Jesus, you're not supposed to say that. You're not allowed to say that. He's not being disrespectful of his mother or his family. In fact, Jesus honors his parents so much that while he is dying on the cross, he makes arrangements for his mother to be taken care of by one of his disciples. What he's saying is, in this world, we hold this to be the highest moral ground of us, our family, our culture, our nation, our neighborhoods. And what I'm saying to you is the kingdom of God moving and working among you is on the same status. It's that important. It's that important into who you are and your soul. So for many of us, in order to grow in our relationship with Jesus, in order to be discipled, we need to break the patterns of our past in order to grow into the pattern of more Christ-like. To that end, discipleship then is putting off the sinful patterns of our broken past in order to be transformed into members of the kingdom of God. Putting it another way, Jesus' calling is that we grow up into mature men and women, transformed by the indwelling of God's Spirit, into the image of God's Son, Jesus Christ. Our discipleship process is to grow to be more like Jesus, and for many of us, that may mean we need to take a hard look at our past and origins in order to break some of those patterns that need to be healed and made into the image of Jesus. As George Santana says, famously, those who ignore the past are doomed to repeat it. If we don't understand what makes us tick, what makes us who we are, that shapes us into who we are, we oftentimes cannot break free from those sin patterns and live in the freedom God has planned for us. I'll give you a metaphor directly from Peter Scazzaro's work on emotionally healthy spirituality. Think of your spiritual life, another way of saying your total life, as a tree that you're cultivating and growing and harvesting from. And your tree produces plums. Always has been that way. You come from a family of people who have produced plums and taken care of these trees. You know that being a follower of Jesus, people who follow Jesus, their trees produce apples. So you give your life to Jesus and you expect your tree to change, but you wake up day after day and it still produces plums. So you get concerned about it and you think, well, okay, the obvious solution right off the bat here, I got to start plucking all these plums off, throw them away, get rid of them, get them out of my life. So you start doing that. But then you're like, well, I'm still not producing apples. So you head online, you go to Amazon Prime and you go into your Whole Foods account and in two hours you can schedule bushels of apples, organic and, um, and fair trade. And you have those at your home, you start stapling them onto the tree. You get so good at it, actually, that you can recognize when a plum is coming. It's just a little green dot on your tree, and you can rip it off, and you get your apples, and you staple them onto the tree. So for all intents and purposes, your tree looks like an apple tree, but it is exhausting to maintain. 
and you still regularly are producing plums that you're just ripping off and you're not producing apples, you're buying them, you're spending your money, you're stapling them on. It's so much work to maintain the image of being an apple tree. For many of us, when we begin to follow Jesus, we haven't done the hard work of asking what makes us produce what we produce in our lives. And what Jesus is calling us to do is not to replace our fruit, but to replace the tree that we have grown. It's not about fruit or leaves or even branches. It's about the roots that make us who we are. It's breaking the patterns of our past, uprooting that tree and planting an entirely new one. But for many of us, it's hard because it comes attached with emotional vulnerabilities and connections about who we say that we are, our last name, our family, our neighborhood, our culture that makes us who we are. But Jesus says it like we looked at last week, and Paul teaches it in Ephesians chapter 4. He says, Throw off your old sinful nature and your former way of life, which is corrupted by lust and deception. Instead, let the Spirit renew your thoughts and your attitudes. Put on your new nature, created to be like God, truly righteous and holy. We need to learn what is at our roots, by asking, where did I learn this pattern of behavior? Why do I do this? Why do I turn to anger so quickly? Why am I such an avoider of confrontation? Where is this sexual sin in my life coming from or the codependency in which I see relationships? Why do I do this and where does it come from? Being born again is not just about starting a new life, but it is about examining our old self and why we do the things we do so that we can be transformed and made new in Christ Jesus. When I do premarital counseling, I have couples most of the time do a genogram, which is a family tree that you write up and you write the significant relationships in your family, your parents, their marriage, their parents, or aunts, uncles, relationships, children, and a lot of what has defined those relationships. So you can look back and see patterns that then are present in your life. And when we see the patterns of what makes us who we are, we can then own it, we can then confess it, we can then seek Christ to transform or redeem it. Now, my family attends the church that I preach at, and this sermon is going to end up online. So I will not share too many vulnerabilities of my own genogram or family, although I have taken them multiple times. I will share, years ago, the first time I did this exercise, I saw a strong pattern on both sides of my family of steadiness in times of chaos, as strong identities in my family, from my father's line and from my mother's line. And then I could see in myself why I was attracted to doing church revitalizations rather than just pastoring or doing a church plant. I liked being the steady presence spiritually when there was chaos milling about. And I could control my emotions well enough when things were swirling in order to bring stability where there's chaos. The flip side and the negative side of that is when things are calm and need to be shaken, I often struggle with that process because I like to be stable in chaos, not cause the chaos needed for new growth. Understanding that was important for me to understand where I need to invite the Holy Spirit to change and shift and grow in me. Some of the aspects of who we are in our past need to be broken so that we can grow in freedom in Christ Jesus. 
We're going to see a model of this from the Old Testament, and then we'll bring it into how Christ does this in our lives now. We're going to look at Joseph from the Old Testament. Joseph is one of the patriarchs of Christian and Jewish faith, Western thought in general. Joseph is 25% of the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible. 25% of the story is Joseph's story. Actually, the final 25% focus on the life of this man. We're going to look at how he needed to break the patterns of his past and go back in order to move forward in a healthy, freedom-embracing, blessed manner. Let's dive into Genesis chapter 42, verses 2 through 8. We're going to see the end of Joseph's life, how he processes this. Then we're going to go back and see what brought us there. So Genesis chapter 45, verses 2 through 8. In this part of the story, Joseph is now um, powerful over the kingdom of Egypt. He's the second in command of the entire kingdom. There's also a global or uh, wide-reaching regional famine that's affecting most of the Middle East. So his brothers, who think that he's dead and have done terrible things to him, come to Egypt looking for help. And they don't recognize Joseph at first as he's the one they have to go to. We then see Joseph telling them who he is and working through his past in this story. Genesis chapter 45. Then Joseph broke down and wept. He wept so loudly the Egyptians could hear him. They're in another room. And word of it quickly carried to Pharaoh's palace. I am Joseph, he said to his brothers. Is my father still alive? But his brothers were speechless. They were stunned to realize that Joseph was standing there in front of them. Please come closer, he said to them. So they came closer. And he said again, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into slavery in Egypt. But don't be upset and don't be angry with yourselves for selling me to this place. It was God who sent me here ahead of you to preserve your lives. This famine that has ravaged the land for two years will last five more. And there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. God has sent me ahead of you to keep you and your families alive and to preserve many survivors. So it was God who sent me here and not you. And he is the one who made me an advisor to Pharaoh, the manager of this entire palace and the governor of all Egypt. Joseph comes from a dysfunctional family. So maybe even as I talked about the genogram, you were thinking about your family it is unlikely your family is more dysfunctional than Joseph's. Joseph is born into a blended family. His mother lives in the same home as her sister. They are both married to Joseph's father, and they both have children with Joseph's father, Jacob. And they are not amicable about it. They're competitive about it. They're angry and bitter at each other about it. And it's not just the two wives. There are also two concubines. They're slave women that... Joseph's father Jacob sleeps with to produce children as well. So there's multiple brothers in this home from multiple mothers. Joseph's father Jacob has a difficult relationship with his own father, his own brother, and his father-in-law. Relationships defined by deceit and trickery and violence between all of them. Joseph's brothers are so jealous of him that they sell him into slavery and fake his death. Joseph himself, not innocent as a young man, the first time we meet him is in chapter 37 of Genesis, and he's a teenager who wakes up from a dream where God revealed a future grand and powerful for Joseph. And he makes a cardinal mistake by going to his brothers, 
he's the youngest or the second youngest and saying, hey guys, great news. One day you will all be bowing down to me and I will be powerful. Not just you, mom and dad, they'll bow down to me too. That's how great I will be one day. Isn't that great news? You can see then how he ends up being sold into slavery and his brothers fake his death. All of this dysfunction results in Joseph at a young age being alienated from his family, from his culture, from his ancestral home, from his neighborhood, and then enslaved in a foreign kingdom hundreds of miles away in Egypt. He then works under a man named Potiphar, is then falsely accused of sexual crimes and imprisoned, and then forgotten about for years. Joseph had every right to be bitter, angry, depressed at his family, at the culture he now finds himself in, at God himself. But scriptures tell us that Joseph still had a tight relationship with God. It says, Genesis 39 verse 2, the Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph in a prison cell, with Joseph as he was sold into slavery, with Joseph as his brothers threatened to murder him. And then we see a turn in Joseph's story about two decades into the time we first met him. He interprets the dream of Pharaoh, is then brought into Pharaoh's palace, then trusted with authority, handles that well, and is then made the second in command of all of Egypt. During a famine and during a plague, he is now trusted to manage all of the food and resources for the entire region. He's honored and blessed and then is put into position of power, which God foresaw, over his brothers who threatened his life and sold him into slavery. And this brings us into the passage we just read, how Joseph responds. We'll look at four things that Joseph does in this moment in order to break the patterns of his own past and in order to heal and move forward. Maybe for some of you, this will speak into your own faith, discipleship, and growth. First thing, Joseph has a profound sense of the bigness of God. It says in Genesis 45, verse 8, Joseph speaking, It was not you who sent me here, but God. He recognizes that God is in and through and working in all things, and that there aren't small moments God doesn't realize or isn't aware of. He may have thought at a young age that God, his Yahweh, was the God only of his region or only of his people. But his story and being enslaved and sold and moved, he sees God was so much bigger than that. He's not just my regional God. He is the God of this whole world. He is the God of the universe. He doesn't just have a plan for my life, but he has a plan for all of our lives. And he is working a grand plan for the goodness of his people and to bring order out of chaos. In his ascension to power and in his enslavement, he sees that God was working through it all. He now sees his story as a small portion of the grand story of what God is doing. And when we elevate our view of God and recognize the bigness of who he is, we are able to see our small moments of suffering and struggle as part of a larger story. And I can be in a few months or a few years of suffering and struggle and say to myself, I trust the goodness of God's overall story. And I trust that this isn't the end of his story in my life. And even if my life ends and I don't have clarity, and even if I don't see it at the end of my story, I trust and know that God is working a grand sweeping narrative 
from creation to the remaking of all things, that my life will play a part in that grand story of redemption. To that end, I can look back on the story of my family, my culture, my neighborhood, my upbringing, my elementary school experience, and see it as fallen people working under a good and redemptive God. When I do the genogram with couples, a lot of times this weird dynamic will happen where one of the members of the couple will have a pretty um, uneventful genogram history with their family and marriages and some kids, but then the other potential spouse will have a wild story of, of chaos and hurt and divorces and, and lost parents and marriages back and forth, different siblings and all these things. And they'll say like, I just feel such guilt and shame coming into this. And like, they're going to bring all this health. I'm going to bring all this chaos. And in those moments, we are able to work through together the reality that, yeah, but you now in this moment, because of Christ Jesus, because of his resurrection and redemptive power, because his spirit lives in you, you are now able to be a linchpin turn in that story of your family. That story of your last name, that story of your family is not over. And you get to be a part of that grand sweeping narrative and change the story of what was into now what will be. You can redeem it and make it something beautiful by God's power in your life. When we see the bigness of God and the slowness of his story, we are able to see our brokenness of our past as a part of a story of goodness that God is working. Second thing Joseph sees and does is that he admits honestly the sadness and losses of his family. This is hard for a lot of us. We don't want to go back there. I can't go back to that pain. I don't want to go back to that pain. I don't want to think about how my father treated me. I don't want to think about how my mother wasn't there. I don't want to remember what that neighborhood bully said to me when I was six that has scarred me into my adult life. I don't want to go there. I just, I've moved on. What Joseph is able to do and the pattern that he gives us that Christ Jesus can unlock in us is to own the sadness and brokenness of where we've come from in order to be healed by it. Joseph weeps so loudly, it says, that Egyptians in the other rooms of a palace made out of stone are able to hear him weeping and bawling his eyes out. Not just small tears, but like ugly sobbing crocodile tears, that area where like you're running out of breath and it's gross. He's sobbing uncontrollably. As an adult man, the second in command of the entire region, he is letting his emotions flow. Some of you maybe need permission to go back and to think about the brokenness of your past and own the fact that that shouldn't have happened to you. That was painful and that was unfair. And let me maybe be an agent of saying to you, what happened to you in your young life was wrong and was unfair and was sinful and shouldn't have happened. Go back and feel that and recognize that. It is hard to heal or forgive or release something we haven't yet grieved. And there may need to be real aspects of your past that you still have yet to grieve. Grieve it. Feel sorrow over it. It's the reality of how we live our life on this earth, that there is grief for what we have lived, but there is goodness in God if we bring it to him. 
Being open and grieving for Joseph in this moment allows him space to heal. He is grieving in front of the people who have hurt him deeply, that he could be better about, but instead he's grieving in their presence. And then we see Joseph heal from this process. And he heals very visually because he names his sons his healing process. His first son's name is translated as forget. He's saying, I have seen this and felt the pain of my childhood. I am going to forget what has happened to me now and move on. And then his second son is named fruitful. He's saying, I have processed. I am forgiving and moving on. And now I am embracing the beauty of what God has planned for my life now. The new life God is making through me now. Some of you need to go through that process. Grieve the brokenness of your past. Hand it over to Christ Jesus at his cross where he takes all pain and all brokenness and he takes it into the grave and leaves it there. And then embrace the resurrection, the redemption of new life in Jesus and allow him to heal you moving forward. Third, Joseph rewrites his life script according to scripture. He takes the story of his life, the brokenness of his past, and he reinterprets it in light of what God has said over him. Joseph had every right to devalue himself based on his life circumstances. He could have sat in an Egyptian prison cell in his 30s and said, I'm a loser. I misinterpreted. I I had delusions of grandeur at a young age that clearly were not my call in life. I'm a mistake. I'm worthless. I should never trust anyone. My trust has been broken over and over again, so I'm done. I shouldn't take risks. I shouldn't believe. I shouldn't feel. It's too painful. I'm a loser. And yet he didn't. With full knowledge of what he's been through and what's made him who he is, he then chooses instead to see his life through who God has called him to be and who God says that he is and what God is capable of in his life. Moments from our childhoods, our family, our teachers, or our friends have a way of sticking with us well into adulthood. I'm dumb. I'm ugly. I'm a bad kid. The faith tension of living on this earth as a human and trusting in a good creator are holding two threads at the same time. We all know, perhaps you've met, the faith person that only holds to God's promises. And it's almost like they're disconnected from reality. Everything's good. Everything's great. God heals all the time. It's perfect. And he's moving and he's blessing and he's prosperous in all that we do. And you say, didn't you just live through the two years of a pandemic that I lived through? Didn't you live through losing people or losing trust in people? Haven't you done that? And then holding on to the reality of what we live in. There is pain. There is hurt. There is brokenness. The families we all arise from are different and your brokenness and your redemptive qualities of your family are different than mine. But we hold, this is what it's like to be human. And people are sinful, broken people trying their best oftentimes in this world, but full of their own brokenness, but serving a very good God who is powerful, loving, and gracious, holding these two at the same time. I'm a realist. I know what this world is like but I am full of faith and trust in the goodness of my God and I bring them together. Joseph is able to own his past and then break the patterns by speaking God's promises over his life and believing them. 
we too can do this, even more so than Joseph, because we have a resurrected Savior in Christ Jesus, because we have a pattern of love and grace in Christ Jesus. John 15, 15, Jesus, our Savior, speaks to us. I no longer call you slaves, because a master doesn't confide in his slaves. Now you are my friends, since I have told you everything the Father told me. Joseph chooses to rewrite his life script according to who God says that he is. You have the power to do that, to break the patterns of your past by embracing who God is now saying you are through the life, death, and resurrection of Christ Jesus. You can be made new in his image and by his power. Genesis 50 verse 20, one of the final verses of the book of Genesis. And Joseph speaks this at the end of his life but speaks it about the story of God's creation in Genesis and speaks it about what it means to be human. He says, You intended to harm me, but God intended it all for good. He brought me to this position so I could save the lives of many people. I rewrite my story in light of who God says that I am. So that, finally, the fourth thing Joseph does here, Joseph partnered with God in order to be a blessing. Joseph could have destroyed his brothers in anger and bitterness. He had the power and the opportunity to do so. Now, I'm not saying Joseph is perfect. He does mess with his brothers a little cruelly initially of making them think they're going to be enslaved and putting stuff in their bags and he messes with them and that's wrong. But then he embraces them, forgives, and chooses to save his family through God's work in his life. He blesses them. For those of us who have been deeply wounded like Joseph, deeply wounded by where we've come from, our culture, our neighborhood, our childhood, maybe your family, we have a call through Christ Jesus. We have an opportunity through his forgiveness in our lives, through his spirit that lives in us, to go back into our origins and be a blessing, to heal those who are also broken to show them the love of God in Christ Jesus and be agents of healing. Joseph makes a choice at some point in his life that he is going to trust in God and ask the question, is God safe? Is God good? Can God be trusted? And he's able to say yes every step of the way so God can use him to be a blessing. We have even so much better than Joseph had because we have the pattern of Christ Jesus. We have the story of his life. We have the resurrected power and we have his spirit in us. In this same way, we have the choice ourselves to go back into the brokenness of our past and begin the process of healing and being a blessing to others. Understand the bigness of God. See your story in the scope of God's size an overall narrative of what he's working. Honestly, admit the sadness of your brokenness from where you've come from. Take a look back and embrace and engage with that pain so that you can understand that God is rewriting your story through the promises of Christ Jesus to eventually be a blessing to others who are experiencing their own brokenness and hurt. I wanna give you an opportunity today to pray a prayer taking a step into that. I'm gonna invite you, if it's your first time, 
to take one step of knowing Jesus, one step of healing, one step of owning our past so we can break its sinful patterns in us. If you are a follower of Jesus, I'll give you this as an opportunity to recommit and realign with Christ Jesus' call in your life. Let's pray this together. God, I see the patterns of brokenness in my life. I may not understand all of them, but I see that there are things in my life, actions I take, emotions I express, that I don't understand why I do them. I don't want to do them. I know they are destructive. I need you, Jesus, to save me, to save me from myself and save me from my brokenness. Jesus, I believe you came to this earth and that you were God and man. I believe you taught and you loved perfectly. Then you went to the cross and you took my sin and brokenness onto yourself. You died in my place, that you were buried in the ground for three days. And on the third day, you rose resurrected with fullness of glory and power and you left sin and death in the grave. Will you be my savior and heal me? You gave your life for mine. Today I give my life to follow you. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. If that was your first time praying that today, click the link somewhere around this video. We would love to know, pray over you, and celebrate with you. Thank you for joining me for this teaching from Pennington AG Church.